1: You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm very good, thank you very much. How are you?
0: I'm a fan. That's how I am. <laughs> Both me and my 11 year old. And oh. I get to talk to you today, Chris.
1: Oh, what's your 11 year old's name?
0: Nati. Nati in full.
1: Oh, how wonderful. And he's and in grade five.
0: Uh, I mean, uh, okay, he really does some experiments and at the other time he almost burned the house down between you and I. My husband doesn't know about this. Even though he's no, he's destined for greatness
1: then. <laughs> I did that.
0: Uh, Chris, it's great to chat to you and uh, we've just finished with our open lines but I'm going to invite you to... Uh, Callers to call in and talk to our naked scientists. Now, Chris, I believe that um, you've uncovered this what's called a vacation cold. Basically, where people when they go on holiday they just tend to get sick um, and they catch a cold. And and talk to us why. I mean, when you go on holiday, you think that's where you're going to be resting, where you have you know time to recharge and reboot. Talk talk to us about the basis of the vacations colds.
1: Yeah, it, it's a common phenomenon. People say that they work themselves to death in the office for months at a time, they never get ill, and then they have a day off or they go off on holiday somewhere and they immediately succumb to something. And our scientists at Cambridge University think that they know at least part of the reason for this, which is that your body clock, which is the it's, it's a genetic domino effect going on in all of your cells in your body, which keeps time, every cell in your body effectively knows the time of day because there is this genetic sequence ticking away in the cells where one gene turns on another gene and that turns on a third gene which turns off the first gene and so on. This genetic clock, uh, the body clock, actually dictates how your cells work and how metabolically active they are and the idea is that they prepare your body to meet the metabolic demands of the Mm -hmm. day ahead so when you wake up in the morning it turns up very hard and when you go to bed at night it turns down your metabolism so you can sleep And what the scientists at Cambridge, this is Rachel Edgar and her colleagues, have published in the journal PNAS this week, is that when you infect cells at different times in the body clock cycle, they are much more or less susceptible to virus infection. Now, they did this in mice, and they also did it in cells in culture, which also have a body clock ticking in them. And what they found is that when the mice were infected at one time of day, the equivalent of when the mice would be going to bed, um, the mice were much more susceptible to being infected with the herpes virus, a glandular fever equivalent, or flu viruses, than mice that were just getting up to meet the challenges of the day. And they found that if they disrupted the body clocks of these mice... In much the same way as when you go on an aeroplane and you fly off on holiday across time zones and get jet lagged, that sort of body clock disruption, the mice got much sicker and had greater spread of the viruses than when they were infected when they were much more geared up to meet that challenge. And the researchers also say, as the year goes on, the reason that probably you get more infections in wintertime, is that one of the genes in the body clock which guards against and gives cells resilience against infection, a gene called BMAL1, the levels of that relative to the other genes drop off in wintertime. So it all fits together. So it's the disruption to your body clock that makes you more susceptible to infection. So getting jet lagged is probably part of the equation when you go away and unfortunately succumb to something straight away.
0: All right. All right. Thank you for that, Chris. You're a super genius. That's all I'm going to say. We have Tony from Kruger's Dope who would like to pose a question to you. You've got a plethora of callers coming in uh, here.
1: Very, big, uh, very quick question. I was driving in my car the other day and I had an insect on my dashboard, a flying insect, obviously, which took off while I was moving. I'd just like to know why that insect wasn't flung to the back of my car, seeing as there's basically nothing but the air in the car to hold it in its place. Hi, Tony. I presume that you had a car that was enclosed. It wasn't an open top like a cabriolet. (laughs) No, 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 it was. It was definitely enclosed. How it got in there, I have no idea. Well, if you're driving along in an enclosed car, windows are done up and there's a bit of air con on to make sure that you're nice and cool in your car. But other than that, there's, there's not really much air movement in the car. So when the car goes along, the air that's inside the car is a sealed mass of air, effectively, and that's being accelerated at the same time as the car because the car pushes on the air molecules they have a bit of inertia and and they slowly are accelerated but once that's the case then you've just got random movement of the air in all directions inside the car so relative to the insects the air is just not moving any more than if it were sitting on the ground outside the car so that's why it doesn't actually have this uh, effect of suddenly being flung to the back of the car because it's it's in contact with a a body of air which is itself in contact with a car which is being accelerated or has been accelerated to the same speed as as the moving car that's not to say the air inside the car can't move and a really interesting experiment if you want to try this everybody but make sure you do it not on the public road because it could be dangerous take get a helium balloon um, which you get at fairgrounds and things put it in the back of your car and drive forwards and then stop by putting your foot on the brakes very suddenly Uh, ask people what do you think the helium balloon will do most people will say it will stay in the back of the car you'd be surprised to see that actually the balloon will come cannoning forward and hit the windscreen of the car and the reason for this is that the helium weighs less than the air does inside the car the car stopping suddenly means that all of the air rushes or effectively slams into the back window of the car and the helium balloon being light in the air is pushed to the front
0: Thanks, Chris, for that. Uh, let's just quickly take an ad break.
1: 702 and Cape Talk.
0: The Naked Scientist. We're back with The Naked Scientist and we're taking your calls. I have Carmen online now. Chris, uh, Carmen has a, has a question um, around the link between kidney infection and depression. Talk to us about that.
1: Oh, I- if i could just first of all just as i was talking about helium balloons i realized when we were just listening to those adverts uh, i said stamp on the brakes i meant stamp on the accelerator um, because when you when your car pulls away all of the air is left behind inside the car a bit which means it rushes to the back and so everyone assumes your helium balloon is going to go backwards and that's why it goes to the front of the car because it floats on the air and the air is left behind inside the car cab have a go (coughs) and see what you think but don't do it on the public road
0: Carmen is gone. Um, We've lost Carmen, so we're going to take a call from Charles. Charles from Cape Town. Talk to us.
1: Hi. Hello, Chris. Uh, Macular degeneration. Do you know if there's been any further progress in the treatment of uh, macular degeneration other than taking lutein? Hi, Charles. Yes. First of all, what is macular degeneration? Well, the macula is the most sensitive part of your retina, which is in the back of your eye, where you convert light into nerve signals that the brain can decode and show you what you're seeing and in this region known as the macula there is the highest density of photoreceptors which are the rods and cones that convert uh, light photons into electrical energy and those rods and cones are nourished by a layer at the back of the eye which is the retinal pigment epithelium the rpe And this provides them with nutrition. It cleans up debris, removes toxins. And just behind that is a dense network of blood vessels that make sure that there's enough fresh blood and nutrients to keep that process healthy. And there are two types of macular degeneration. One is called wet macular degeneration. And this is where blood vessels become leaky and you get hemorrhages and breakdown of material in the macula and you lose your central vision. Dry macular degeneration is where you don't have leaky blood vessels, but instead you lose your photoreceptors because the cells and tissue in that region begin to die off. Now, it's not a cure yet, but I was at a conference in Western Australia in Perth called Science on the Swan at the beginning of May, and a researcher called Lyndon uh, DeCruz, who's at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, presented some work he's been doing where they have developed a special repair patch for the back of the retina. And they are able to create this patch of healthy retinal pigment epithelium tissue, which they can slot in under the retina and restore the action of that nourishing protective layer at the back of the eye, which keeps your photoreceptors healthy. And they've been able to show that they can reduce the process and the the rate at which macular degeneration progresses. And they're also able to restore some vision because it helps to clean up some of the damage that's already been done, which helps people to regain some of their vision Uh, these are experimental um, tests that they're doing at the moment but they are doing them on patients they're doing clinical trials and the results look very encouraging so the answer is yes there's every reason to be optimistic and that's just one example of what researchers are doing to try and deal with a problem that will become much more common in future as more and more people live longer and longer
0: Right. Um, Chris, we did last that call from Carmen, um, but please can you still answer that question? Now, Carmen's question was, what is the link between kidney infection and depression?
1: Well, I, I don't think there is a definite link in, as in that one thing causes the other. But certainly it's true that any kind of ill health will make people suffer low mood. Kidney infections are very debilitating. They're uncomfortable, they make you feverish, and if you have fever, then you also have uh, inflammation um, and inflammatory signals from your immune system are also linked to feeling more miserable. And so I I think probably the association there is that when you're unwell, you don't feel happy. Um, But I don't think there's a defined thing where one causes the other. You can't say if you get a kidney infection, you will always be depressed. I think it's probably your personal psychological reaction to not feeling very well
0: and we have shirley from johannesburg shirley what's your question to chris hello hi shirley are you there oh i'm sorry yes it's shirley speaking morning to you chris
1: hello what would you like to ask
0: um chris i'm almost 80 and lately I've been sort of choking on my own saliva. It's very, very traumatic. I cannot get my breath. And when I'm alone, it's um, a beat that dickens out of my rib casing that I actually bruise it. But eventually I get my breath to cough and try and come right. Is there anything else you can suggest?
1: Well obviously if this is a new thing Shirley this is something that needs to be investigated and um, a radio diagnosis is not a replacement for going to see a doctor who can have a look and make sure that there's not something important that's being missed or something has changed and, and that could be remedied. Obviously as you get older everything gets a bit saggier. And we also are more likely to get bits of thing, you know, f- uh, saliva or mucus sticking in various places, and it might be that you need to just have a good cough, and because you've got a bit older, it's ha- it's harder to cough as hard as you would have done when you were younger and dislodge obstructions and things, and it may be a range of those factors, but I would certainly, if this is a new thing that's happening abruptly and it's, it's happening more often, and it's it's worrying you, you should go and see a doctor because there may be some other thing that can be remedied there, and then you'll get some rel-
0: Thanks Chris for that I have a question of my own Chris, now I recently read about the uncanny valley talk to us about that
1: I've never heard of uncanny valley, unless that's the thing that you're referring to where it looks like a car is going downhill when or sorry, it looks like a car is going uphill when in fact it's rolling downhill. Is that what you mean? It no,
0: it's like apparently robots uphill. who resemble humans um, because of a sense of unevenness un- un- and, and something to that effect. So when I Googled that, I thought, OK, this is one that I need to pose to Chris.
1: I've never heard the phenomenon. If anyone can enlighten me, I'd be be grateful. I mean, we do make things in our own image, because if you make things that look like us, then the theory goes that people are going to be more comfortable hanging around with machines that we can identify with and look more friendly to us. But, uh, I I mean, other than that, I I can't speculate.
0: Thanks for that, Chris. Um, There's a call from Paul from Durbanville. Um, Paul, do you want to pose your question to Chris? Yes,
1: thanks. Hello,
0: Chris. Um, my question Apple. is, this. as a boy... Can you hear me?
1: Yes, yes, I can. Go on, ask the question. Oh, great. Yeah, um, as a boy watching Westerns, you'd see these buggies being drawn by a horse, and the, the wheels would be going clockwise, but the spokes appeared to be going counterclockwise. And this is still a phenomenon in today's movies. Why? What is the cause of that? Why do the spokes look like they're going in the opposite direction? Right, the wheel? Paul, what you, what you are witnessing is a stroboscopic effect. Those movies were shot with cameras which shot a certain number of frames per second. So let's just do the thought experiment. Let's imagine a wheel and we're going to paint a spoke which is pointing upwards at the 12 o'clock direction with a big white blob so we can see it. So we'll imagine the TV camera or whatever they're using is... Let's say it's taking 25 pictures a second. When the wheel first begins to move, the spoke with our white spot on it turns a little bit because the wheel... Is not moving very fast. So when the picture is next taken, the spoke will have gone from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock. And then the wheel speeds up a bit, and this time it goes from 1 o'clock, not to 2 o'clock, but to 3 o'clock. And then the next picture that's taken goes from 3 to 6 because the wheel's speeding up a bit more. But we're still okay because it still looks like it's going forwards. But now imagine that the wheel is going so fast that the picture is taken. And instead of going from one to two, it now gets almost all the way around and goes from one to 11 o'clock or round to 10 o'clock. And then it's going so fast that it goes all the way around and round again. So it's around at uh, nine o'clock what you can imagine is that as the thing speeds up, it starts off going forwards, you can see it ticking around forwards, but then at a certain point, it's going to go so fast that between the snapshots that the camera takes, it will have gone all the way round and round again, and it looks like it's almost going backwards. And that's the reason why you see it speed up, speed up, appear to go backwards for a while, and then start going forwards again. And you can see the same phenomenon with modern-day cars on the road because the street lamps are powered by mains electricity this is at 50 hertz which means there are 50 cycles of the electricity per second and that means that the electricity is flicking the light on and off 100 times a second because it goes plus minus twice a second and that means that you get 100 glimpses a second of your wheel so as you drive along the road in the dark then you'll see that the wheel appears to be doing the same thing because it's being strobed by the street lights so modern day cars will do it too.
0: Are you happy with that, Paul? Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm sure you oh, are. Now, I have Chris. Oh, I've just I've lost, lost Chris it. from uh, oh. Rosettenville Anyway, um, uh, let's take a call. Well, I'm not going to ask that question because when I read it on the screen, I'm like, I'm not going to pose that question. Um, but we'll hopefully that uh, will have Chris back online with that question um chris what other new inventions that are happening out there and i have to tell you this because i've invited a friend of mine uh, she's a martian and uh, she's training to go to mars in 2026 um dr adrian More and uh, when we went to a women's summit in mauritius just a couple of weeks ago and when she says she's going to mars i said why Why do you want to go to Mars? And she actually has um, no qualms, by the way, that she might not even come back. Um, She's made a decision not to have children. Um, So she's going to be online with us just after the news. And before that, but I would also would like you to help me um, as a layperson. What happens in Mars? I know there's nothing that grows there for, you know, for starters. Um, And we can just maybe, you know, just tell us about Mars in, in, in leading up to our time with Adriana.
1: Sure. Um, where do you want me to begin?
0: <laughs> Why would be, even people want to go to Mars? Um, I even actually took the time to watch uh, The Martian um, the other day with, um, what's his name? This um, uh, esteemed actor. Um, and it's because you know, I'm fascinated that when people just want to do the out of the ordinary, um, go on a spacesuit and go and live in Mars. I mean, um, well, I just want to go on a cable cart to uh, the Table Mountain. That's my mission in life. And so, just talk to us about life in Mars.
1: Well, walking up Table Mountain is hard work, but it's not as hard as walking around on Mars. I can tell you that. (laughs) And Table Mountain is infinitely more beautiful than Mars, which is a really nasty place. Um, It's barren, it's red, it's the radiation is very high because there's no nice atmosphere and ozone there to soak up the ultraviolet, so you get um, very nasty levels of radiation there, and it's very cold. The temperature goes to you know, many degrees below zero, and it just about reaches freezing point in the daytime. And it's not, therefore, a very nice place. There's nothing to look at apart from rocks and valleys. But it is there, it's an important target, because to get there we have to breach so many technological barriers and physical barriers for humans. We've got to get fragile human beings on a nine-month space journey, safely across space, where they're going to get radiation raining in on them. They're going to have all kinds of demands placed on their body. They're going to be floating around in microgravity, which is going to do nasty things to them. So we've got so many problems to solve that it is is a really important thing to try and do this because of what it represents you know we have not done anything major in space really in the 40 years since Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon Um, and so it's about time we got ourselves in gear and (laughs) broke down some of these barriers. Wow
0: Chris it's been an absolute blast hanging out with you thank you so so much for your insights you just as I said super genius great time hanging out with you